Yeah, I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man, and get that cream, black man. We the original. I don't think that unless a greater effort is made by the government to win popular support, that the war can be won out there. In the final analysis, it is their war. They are the ones that have to win it or lose it. We can help them. We can give them equipment. We can send our men out there as advisors, but they have to win it. President John F. Kennedy on Vietnam, September 2nd, 1963. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. Earlier this week, Americans witnessed the dismal withdrawal and evacuation of U.S. forces from Afghanistan as the nation fell to the Taliban. For the American veteran, this is a bitter pill to swallow, particularly for those of us who fought and lost our brothers and sisters in arms in the war in Afghanistan. As I watched the withdrawal on television and social media, I decided the best place to convey my thoughts was on this platform. To join me, I invited fellow Afghan war veteran, author, and Army Green Beret, Herb Thompson, a thought leader in the veteran space whom I had the privilege to meet at an event at Dartmouth University in 2019. In the following episode, Herb and I process our feelings on the situation in Afghanistan and discuss the implications it has on America and Afghan war veterans. This episode of Confessions of a Native Son is brought to you by my organization, Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. To support the cause, visit our website, www.ironboundboxing.org, to make a donation today. I'd also like to acknowledge our sponsors, Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Make sure you also subscribe to our newsletter for Confessions of a Native Son on Substack at the link in the show notes. I release a newsletter every Friday at noon, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss my upcoming newsletter continuing my thoughts on Afghanistan. As always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me. And I hope you enjoyed today's show. Circle back to the hood and teach them youngsters to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And circle back to your hood and teach them youngsters to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of my show. Man, uh, I'm excited today because I have Mr. Herb Thompson on, uh, a fellow Afghan veteran. Uh, Green Beret. Uh, were you an entrepreneur, thought leader? How do I describe, how do I describe you nowadays, Herb? Uh, a chameleon. I fit in anywhere. He's a, uh, a man enjoying my summer. How about that? That's good. A man enjoying his summer. But uh, in all seriousness, man, I'll tell y'all, I was uh, I was just getting coming back from a coffee shop and I was walking my podcast studio on a Sunday and I'm like, I kind of, I'm thinking about talking about Afghanistan, just because there's all this stuff that's kind of going on. And, you know, to be honest, I try to avoid topical topics on this show. Um, but, you know, in terms of like free flowing kind of thoughts and everything, 
I just felt like expressing myself about it. And so I sit down, I jump on LinkedIn, I see her posting and I was like, Hey man, you willing to jump on a podcast to kind of talk about um, how you're feeling right now about what's going on in Afghanistan. And uh, he obliged. And so without further ado, Herb, man, what's going on, brother? Hey, man, I, I'm happy to talk it out, Mike. Uh, I don't know if we'll say the right things, but I don't think there is a right thing to say, right? This is a, a very troubling, sad, angry, you know, any mixed range of emotions time. Uh, so I'm happy to talk about it with you. Before we uh, jump in, do you mind uh, doing me a favor, introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so Herb Thompson, 20 years in the Army, half of that as a Green Beret, uh, did two trips to Afghanistan, one where I was really in the fight all the time back uh, nine years ago, and then transitioned out, uh, worked as a management consultant with Accenture on the federal side, and then uh, you know got my MBA at Cornell, while also I wrote a book uh, about transition, the transition mission to help our brothers and sisters uh, transition out. And then now I'm just enjoying my family time, looking for that next fit. Where are you living now? I live right outside of D.C. I call it my little slice of heaven in the woods. Yep. And literally, I'm looking out. You can't see it, but outside my windows, I have a whole wall of windows. It's it's a valley with nothing but trees and, like, animals and birds flying by right now. So it's awesome. Love it, man. Finding that peace post-service. And uh, y'all can't see me and Herb on uh, on uh, on video, but we're both bearded out. His beard is a little bit more serious than mine, but he looks very happy and very jovial. Yeah, yeah. quite frankly, we look like some of the people uh, running through Afghanistan right now with guns, but uh, we won't let that digress or distract from the show today. Yeah, and I'll tell you all, so how me and Herb came to meet is, uh, it's funny with veterans, you jump on, you feel like you've known people forever, but we've actually met in person once, but been following each other on LinkedIn for, I don't know, a few years now, but I met Herb down at uh, Dartmouth University. I got invited to come speak at a entrepreneurial. Basically, it was the Dartmouth Next Step program. Yeah, Tuck uh, Transition Business, Next Step Transition Business. And uh, they reached out to me, asked if I would come around and talk about my entrepreneurial experience. And uh, I drove down there, stayed in a hotel, got to talk to your cohort that um, for that program. And then afterwards, I think I went to a bar to get some food. And I was just sitting at the bar, drinking a beer and eating. And Herb was sitting there. And we just chopped it up, probably talked for about 30, 45 minutes. Um, I know you were just transitioning out at that point. Um, so we're thinking about going to get your MBA there. But it was real uh, cool to see you go on and go to Cornell and get it. And now look at you, wrote a book, kind of found your little quiet piece of land, heaven on earth. And now you're just kind of being a thought leader and a writer. Yeah, man, it's uh, crazy to think back. You know, that was that was three. That was 2018, spring of 2018, I believe. So over three years ago to think of like, you know, we're just meeting you in a bar. Well, obviously the program there and hearing you speak, but, you know, just going up, talk to you in a bar and like where you've gone since then and where I've gone since then. It, it's just, I think it shows the quality of uh, a lot of veterans that get out and do something to better people and better those around them. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's just very serendipitous. You know what I mean? It's just like to see us both. And I was in a different phase of my life at that time. I was still within my first year going full time. So I was still kind of figuring it out. And I just remember you being very stoic. You were trying to contemplate life. And, you know, here we are three years later on the other side of a pandemic. Uh, or at least we think we are. Who knows now? And then uh, now I'm watching all this stuff unfold in Afghanistan. So let's just jump right into it, man. And uh, one of the things we do on this show is we give a confession. And I'll go first and then I'll let you go. 
Uh, but my confession is I'm pretty indifferent about uh, what's going on in Afghanistan. I mean, I stopped watching the news probably in the middle of the pandemic just because it wasn't doing anything for me. And I just saw this kind of negative energy coming out of the news. But then I saw some stuff pop about Afghanistan. I did a quick glance. But for me, you know, when I was there in 2012, we were told that we were drawn down, you know, and our whole thing was we're handing this thing over to uh, the Afghans. And I don't even know if that's respectful to say, even if that term Afghans in general. Um, but I went to Afghanistan with the extent that we were handing over this control of the country to the Afghan security forces and that we were going to kind of get phased out. And then, uh, you know, you end up going over there and I found myself um, just somewhat jaded by everything, just how everything had kind of played out from the Afghan security forces. I was there at a time when there was a lot of blue on uh, green. So uh, Marines getting killed by their security force counterparts. Um, right after we left, Bastion got overrun. A lot of people uh, were killed. And uh, just being there and being on the ground. And, uh, you know, I actually got relieved in Afghanistan. And I talked about it on one of my podcasts. And uh, I left Afghanistan with a real kind of hate and discontent for uh, the country. And I also left with a little bit of hate and discontent towards uh, Muslims, to be quite frank. And it took me some self-awareness and some reflection and getting out of the Marines and moving to a place like Newark, where I was forced to be around people that thought different than what we're indoctrinated with in the military. Yeah. Um, and I had to, and I'll talk about it on episode Confessions of a Muslim American. But, you know, I really had to overcome that, you know, just that that kind of narrative view I had of Muslim culture and Arab culture in general. And so when I look and see what's going on in Afghanistan, for me, it's just like, man, we should have been out of there, you know? And the last thing I had to see was when people were dying in like 29, you know, here I am a whole new, whole new phase of my life, a whole different chapter. And we still got people dying out there. So I'm just like, man, we should have been out. I don't know if you agree. You probably have your own opinions, but I'm curious to hear, you know, your confession. Yeah, obviously this is my confession, right? And I'm torn like some veterans I've spoke with. And if you would ask, so I was there in 2012 too. It's ironic. I was advising a commando company then. And I'm not going to tell you, I've probably never been more alive than that year of my life. I was there 10 months in 2012. I was probably never more alive. I got to go do stuff. Um, I would go out with just the commandos. I wouldn't have to take my whole team. We'd got special permission that I could go out as long as a couple enablers or infantry guys went with us. Uh, and I loved them. Um, I, when I left, I had bought my key leaders knives. I had had my now ex-wife sent over backpacks to give to their kids. Uh, and they gave me a bunch of things too. So I really loved it. So if you had asked me probably up until a couple of years ago, Hey, what do you think about that? I would have said, can I go back right now? Pack my bags. I'm going to go back and serve with them guys. Cause I'm telling you, the commandos I served with, not all of them, but were good people and multiple times saved my life. But if you ask me now, and that's my confession is, I wouldn't go back. You know, I would not go back. If you said, Herb, get on a plane right now, fly out of DC, BWI, wherever, and go over to Afghanistan to help them. Here's your weapon. Here's your kit. I wouldn't go at today's, you know, nine years later, I wouldn't go. I have a different perspective on it. And quite frankly, the, the ground situation has changed. So, that that's my confession of I was all for it then. I truly believed in it. I loved it, and I've you know thought a lot about it. I wrote an article that was on Inc. about you know taking a mission there. It was a small mission, 
And then here's business application out of it. And I got some publicity, but it was, you know, I was all in even up till a couple of years ago. And then I was like, I'm with you, man, bring our, bring our boys home, bring our, you know, our brothers and sisters home. Uh, it's, there's no good solution at this point. I think all of us can agree. There's no good solution to Afghanistan at this point. We've been there now coming on 20 years. There's no good solution. There's only bad ones and worse ones. And we can debate what that is right now. What, uh, what changed in you? Why, why do you think your opinion changed? Yeah. So I think one, and I, I mean, this may be a simple analogy, but the old analogy of you could teach, give somebody fish or you can teach them to fish. Right. And we've given the Afghan people plenty of fish. There's no doubt they've, they got the fish. Now we've taught some to fish and showed them how to fish and they have learned that. But quite frankly, a lot of people didn't want to learn how to fish. They just, you know, didn't want it for whatever reason, because their culture is different than ours. Their values are different than ours. It's not America East or West, depending on which way you, you know, that's, that's a different place. So after looking at it, um, I'm like, no, I, it's not worth my life, quite frankly, to go over there to help them. Yes, we haven't had terrorist tech here in 20 years. Yes, I know through, you know, a very small part of mine and many other people collectively, we gave them people hope. We give them a chance to succeed. And quite frankly, probably hundreds to tens of thousands have got out of Afghanistan over the years that we've been there to a better life. What, what more can we do, right? Is it worth, worth helping over there to not help here? And quite frankly, really what changed for me, I had kids um, uh, then, but they were young. And now I see like, is that worth me not being here for my kids? And I just look at it differently now. No, it's interesting. Um, you know, me coming from a service academy, I was very idealistic, you know? And so going out there, like you think you're ready to change the world. That's what people don't realize. You know, I think sometimes they see military people, even those of us in combat arms as like some kind of mercenaries or whatever else, baby killers. But really a lot of people are idealist, idealists. Is that what it is? Idealistic or idealist? Idealistic. Yeah, we are. We believe in making a better good, right? That's why a lot of us sign on the dotted line or at least stay and go put ourselves in harm's way. But what I noticed is when we get out there and we get on ground, some of us turn to, you know, you forget the why, you know, and you get this really jaded sense of everything. And, you know, I even think about the Marines I went out there with. Once we lost the Marine, it was a wrap, <laughs> you know, and we lost the pop two very popular Marines on to an IED, uh, Lance Corporal Stephen Sutton and Agent uh, 3 Warren. And after that, it was a wrap. You know, there was tension between the interpreters and the Marines and everything. And then it's funny as I start to get older and I look back, like, I feel like if I would have got shot in Afghanistan, or if I would have died in Afghanistan, I'd have been mad. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'd have been pissed off. Yeah, man. I think we go there idealistic and maybe not all of us, but a lot of us. And then at the end of the day it becomes a survival of let's get myself home and more importantly, get my brothers in this case, because that's what I serve with my brothers on the left and right of me home you know, get us home. That's it. But it is very easy to become jaded, very easy to become pissed off. It's also very easy in my case, working with the commandos and the partner force to be like, why aren't you guys fighting more? And I was like, oh, you've been doing this for the last in 2012 timeframe, you know, 11 years, some of them, you know, and it was like, oh, you're tired. You've been actually out here fighting for the last 11 straight years of combat. Okay. Like I'm, I've come in, I'm here for 10 months. Uh, so again, mixed feelings, even back then about some of those things, but, uh, 
it's it, it, I think it's very easy to become jaded in war because all of us will love this idealistic and maybe we think about that, like you said, from service Academy. And I, you know, I came the opposite enlisted a guy straight out of high school, worked my way up and I still believed in similar things to you. And then it's like, well, what are we actually doing here? Cause at the end of the day, I'm working with people and building relationships here on the ground, but really who's making decisions that impact this whole overall, you know, policy or strategy you're talking, you know, at the highest levels of our government and we have no control over that. Right. You know, it's funny. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is people always ask me, they're like, if Mike, at you at 34, what advice would you give to your younger self? And my thing was like about forgiveness now, you know, because for us as like high driven, idealistic, get after it. We really thought we could solve like we we're made to believe in the military that there is a way to win. You know, that if we just figure yeah. it out and we solve it, that we can win. And it took me a little bit of time and reflection to kind of look at the whole thing in Afghanistan and say, like, there was no win in that. You know, it's like yeah. they put yeah. us in an impossible situation. And or if, even what what does a win look like? Right. Correct. Not even is there a win? What the hell does that look like? Uh, I mean, I, I've never seen a good answer. And we saw it at Bastion, right? Like, the oh, we're going to have a, a, you know, a pizza hut and maybe we'll have a Starbucks out here and do all that kind of stuff. And that's how we democratize Afghanistan, but even that got overrun, you know, early on. Yeah. That's how I knew. I knew it. I, I saw it in 2012. I'd been there in 0304 for 10 and a half, almost 11 months as a support guy, non-combat arms. We drove around in non-armored vehicles and the biggest weapon system was a M16, not an M4, an M16, like, like, and I had to stop as a young E5 go, Hey, What's the convoy briefing? What are we going to do if something happens? And people are like, it doesn't matter, man. Like, this is safe. And it was, quite frankly, we drove around the country. Unless you had a few key spots in that time frame, you, it was no different really driving around here other than you're, you're a little more scared. Then when I went back, I was like, holy shit, man, we're having to roll out with, like, lots of guns, lots of indig in my case. And then I went to Bagram and saw, like, there was a United States Army garrison unit at Bagram that policed your uniform and do you have a PT belt on and do you, and people can't see me, but I have long hair and a beard now. And I try to do that while I was in. So like me playing the game of the bureaucracy is not, not my strength. And I was like, this is, I don't know when it's going to happen, but this is not working. There's too much bureaucracy and just straight silliness going on here to affect the people who, who, who could, you know, reap the rewards from our, um, assistance there. I think one of the reasons your experience might've been different too, is when I was at the Academy, there was a green Bray who came and talked and he, he I know he kind of, I'm not being, I'm listen, no opinion here. There was a green Bray was promoting this whole one tribe at a time kind of approach. So you go in there, you immerse yourself with the people you're in the community, you learn about them. And then that's how you build rapport and that's how you build change. Right. And it sounds to me like when you were working, I could be wrong, but that was more that you're kind of, you guys have always been teachers, Green Braves. Yeah. You guys yeah. have always been teacher. You immerse yourself in it. And I think I came in on like the bureaucratic side, <laughs> you know, I came in with the Afghan security forces and all yeah. that. And these guys did not want to work. And it might be about what you said. It might, they just been doing it for so long. Yeah. And, and to what end, right? Uh, so I love the commandos I worked with. I also, we, 
our unit partnered up with the ANA, the regular Afghan National Army Security Forces, to do got they led me into three ambushes in 10 days, right? That thankfully I survived and all the people with me survived at that time. Uh, but it was like there was a difference. I saw it then, but you had the people who really wanted to fight and believed in it for the most part. But I mean, even that, Mike, I'll say this. At the end of the day, I had to believe it. I, I lived in a camp where there was a th thin wall of sand that blocked me from 150 guys who, if they didn't like me, they all had guns. And I would go over there every day. And like when you were talking about some of the um, uh, green on blue incidences and the insider attacks in Afghanistan in 2012, I was with them, the, uh, the Afghan commanders at the time. I had been going over there in my low ranger panties and my low short shorts t-shirt talking to them every day. And then that happened and people are like, you know, from a pirate, like you got to wear all this kit. And I was like, my only security is the fact that these people like me right now, these 150 some Afghan commandos like me, I'm not going to carry a gun. Cause I can do math. They have 150 guns or more. If they want me dead, I'll be dead. So even like wanting to, I had to believe it or otherwise, how would I've lived every day for 10 months amongst them, you know, with a, at best, a thin wall in between us. And at worst, I was, you know, worst, best, however you look at, surrounded by 150 of them all having guns. What do you think about our approach going into these communities so heavily armored, trying to be the, the dictators? Because, you know, at a certain point, the kids start to mimic us. You know, it was stupid when I was at her. We were walking in a straight line. It was yep. basically being in a minefield. We had so much gear from these contractors, freaking Wolfhound, uh, I don't even know what the stuff was. We just look stupid. Like you're wearing all this gear just to go outside the wire. Right. And the kids would like walk next to us with their little sticks mimicking what we're doing. Yeah. But like you said, we had the British special forces with us and they were just walking around very light. You know, it's like they mentally had accepted the fact that if they stepped on ID, it was their choice. I'll tell you, you know, I'm not going to story time, but I had a similar experience. I so I was always with Indich towards the end of the tour. Um, I became one. It was like, hey, if if this happens, it happens. And we had been told we we're going to do this mission, and it was actually another special forces team, but they were um, living in that area. They had their uh, village stability platform. So I took my commandos up there, and we got told we hit an IED or there was an IED planted. So there's a bomb planted on our route. So we stopped and we stopped and we stopped. Next thing you know, the next time I just walked up on the bridge and looked around with my scope on my uh, rifle and was like, that's clear. And the team started time. I was wrong, but the team started time that I was supporting their team um, who lived there. I was like, he's like, Herbert, are you on the bridge? I was like, yeah, man. Like, this is taking too long. We've been two hours to drive like 15 minutes. And, but at the time, like at the time I thought I was right. But looking back, it was like, A, thankful I'm alive. B, like, I'd accept it. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen. But like you also, because I became familiar with it, I became familiar with the fight. I became familiar with the, the people I realized, yep, yeah, this is, this is not really an issue. Let's go. And it's, it was just by living it, right? Like you were talking with the British Press forces and then do you use mine detectors? Do you do whatever? But it was, I mean, it really just came down to at the end of the day, let's get this thing done with whether I live or not. You start to see this is what happens, right? We always watch those movies. You know, you watch the guys, they start losing their minds, right? And you're like, that ain't me. That's not me. You start losing your mind a little bit. You know, you start rationalizing stuff that don't even make sense. Like you said, like, man, <laughs> fuck this. <laughs> We're going around. 
You know, because yep. you're right. It's moving at like a snail's pace. Here's an IED. This is this is that. This is that. Everything on the side of the road. You know, you see something, and so it's like, yeah, you're being safe, but at a certain point, you start to lose it, man. You're like, we're going around this. Fuck it. But you never know what could happen. Yeah, you don't. And in that case, you know, I thought, or I still think, I had mitigated the risk. I had scanned the roads with my scope. I didn't see any wires. Got up on the bridge, scanned everything, didn't see wires. And I had some commandos uh, using a little mine detector going up the road. They're way behind me, but I was like, okay, whatever. But I, I think that's what it, it takes, right? And I, I think that is part of what happened in Afghanistan. It became this big military industrial complex, put a lot of people in there, put all this. When if you look at Afghanistan in, we'll say, December of 2001 till today, man, it was much safer for an American to walk around December 2001. And it's because we went in there and we got kind of seen as Vader. So I always tried to talk to the people. And I would say that's where I got wiser then. But even since now is let me try to understand. I don't have to agree with you, but let me understand. And I always think back to this one. We had been in hour long fire, hours long firefight, like all, all day. Oh, well, from the night into the day, end up being about 12 hours. And we took a rest at this compound full of heroin, full, full of poppy, poppy everywhere. And I'm asking this farmer, because quite frankly, I was bored. Where did the, whose poppy is this? And he's like, what poppy? I'm, I'm looking at an acre of poppy, like literally what's going to be processed to be opium. And I was like, what pop, whose poppy is this? He's like, what poppy? I'm like, dude, I'm here. Look, I'm showing it to you. And he's like, it's not mine. I was like, who owns this compound? He's like, mine. But at the end of the day, it was his survival was just don't tear down this poppy because I'm going to make about $3,000 for this acre and it's going to feed my family. So, and I had no interest in tearing down the poppy, you know, right or wrong. I was just literally taking a break from a 12 hour firefight to have a talk with him. Is saying the word Afghans, is that slang? Is that derogatory? I mean, I hope not because I say it all the time. All right. Um, For for our listeners, I'm not trying to be derogatory. This is how we talked back then. And so I don't know. But I just know that, like, with the Afghans, you could catch them red-handed with IED. You know, what are you doing? That's not IED. Yes, it is. We see the pressure plates. You know, there's no IED. You know, like, we're not stupid. It is an IED. You you can catch them red-handed. They're just – their culture is just completely different. I think they'll never admit to it. You know, there's no, like, oh, honor. I won't call them honor. They have their own kind of code. It's just different. It's a different way of looking at things. Yeah, we look at it from the American lens because that's what we, or at least, you know, that's what I looked at is this is what I know and this is how I've been brought up. That's what I've been taught. They look at it through their lens and it's different. And unless we pull back and go, hmm, just like we try to build up an army that looks like ours. Well, that isn't what they need, right? They're built on tribes. The tribe and their religion, their everything comes first before any nation. And it's just different that, you know, we not can try to understand and, you know, work with back then. As you've been moving through your like personal life, how much have you thought of Afghanistan until recently? Uh, so I, I like you kind of took a break. So I used to think about it all the time. Cause I ain't going to lie. Um, some of those times of that year, 2012 is the most alive I've ever felt. Um, being out there surviving multiple engagements, doing all kinds of stuff that, even fellow Green Braves were like, dude, we don't get to do this and you're get to go out here and you're leading this or doing this. Um, I loved it. So afterwards I thought about it because I want to go back. And then it drifted to like, what did it all mean? And I was like, I just don't want to see it. Because once I started seeing stuff about like 
areas that I had been risked my life. My buddies have risked my life. Some died in. And now they're like, oh, there's fighting there. And where I was like, I've been stranded there. I, I literally walked down the street by myself while a convoy broke down and we were okay. Uh, so I was like, let me take, let me stop looking at this for my own sanity. And now the last probably week, I've been very in tune to it, to what is going on there. Just I morbid curiosity. I don't know, you know, like what maybe trying to understand and deal with my own kind of service there of what's going on. And I think partly some concern for the people I worked with there and are they okay? And are, are they, you know, safe? I'll tell you, I'll compartmentalize Afghanistan. And then I don't know what it was. And I don't know if it was my girlfriend that came across an article or something, but I came across one of those old New York, something came across about, I, you know, I was having a conversation with my girlfriend about Afghanistan and I had mentioned about the Baji Bahi. Right. The little boys of Afghanistan and that yes, whole practice. Yep. And she was like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, there's a whole article about it. That's what they boom. I sent her the New York Times article. And when I did that, I forgot how much I had compartmentalized all that stuff. Because me as an officer, before I went to Afghanistan, I used to read all the ARs. I used to go on a little little thing and read the ARs. I read the Afghan campaign by uh, Pressfield. You know, I was reading all these books. I did that. Yeah, Bear over the mountain. Yeah, I did that political science class. Yeah. You know, I watched all the documentaries on it. Um, I did all that stuff. The, the push about one six. I watched all that. And I have not touched any of that stuff ever since. You know, Obama's war. See uh, on a front line. So like we were as very knowledgeable as we could be, you know, because we're officers. We're going in there. This is what yeah. we did. This was our it was a passion. It was more than just like, oh, this is a job. It was like, I need to know everything I can about this culture. I need to know everything I can. So I was reading whatever. And then it's just like, after that whole, my situation, everything, I was just like, I'm done with Afghanistan. Boom, compartmentalize it. But there was a lot of stuff like that, that like was just showed us that how different our culture was, you know, for those that don't know what Baji Bahi was, it was the practice of basically treating little boys like women. And there was a saying in Afghanistan. Not, that, not even women, just um, sex slaves. Like, sex yeah. slaves. Yeah. What is it? Uh, boys are for pleasure. Women are for something. Boys are for women pleasure. Are for, yeah, I don't know. This, man, there's a lot of slang from that time period. Uh, boys are for pleasure. Pleasure. Women are for children, maybe. Yeah. Women are for yeah. children. Boys are for pleasure or something. Yeah. And so now you throw Marines in this. And we have a completely different culture and stuff. And it was just just inappropriate behavior. And especially with like, you know, our Afghan stand uh, counterparts, the, the police, you know, when we went to Afghanistan beforehand, it was like, make sure you include them in your briefings. You know, when you're doing the workup, make sure they're there, make sure they're a part of it. And then you get to country. Don't include them in your briefings. We can't trust them. You need to put security on them. You know? So it was like, and, and me as the officer, I'm dealing with this cognitive dissonance of like, I feel like a liar all the time. Like I'm having yeah. to stand in front of my Marines and say, mission first, this is this. But deep down inside, I'm like, what are we doing? We can't even trust these guys. Yeah, it, it was interesting because when I first got there with the commandos, that was kind of how it was. We we didn't involve them in planning. And we said, hey, we're hitting this target. We'd show them a picture, right, of a village. And if they were a genius and could figure out a picture of a satellite, a satellite picture of the village, they could figure out. But then eventually we could like, well, we need to, the goal was to get them to do it without us. So we need to get them involved in planning. And it was 
a very delicate balance of how much information do we give them? Cause do we trust all of them? Right. And it became, and at the end of the day, we're riding with our lives on it. Like, Hey, we kept giving more information. It was like, Hey, but it was a balance. Cause when we'd go in, there'd be a few Americans and a ton of Afghans. So we could either keep it all to ourselves or give as much to their leaders as possible so they could actually employ and we could employ, you know, the large numbers that we had. So it was always a difficult decision of how much information do we give and how much do we hold back just for us? What's interesting hearing you talk even early on was how much it sounded like you had respect for the guys you worked with. I can't speak for everyone, but I felt this sense of like uh, uh, cultural inferiority, call it racism, call it whatever you want from commanders, you know, because we would go in there, you know, you're very idealistic. You're trying to say, uh, you know, you're really trying to put your best foot forward for the, the, the indigenous, you know, the Afghans. I remember one platoon commander, he was trying to argue with the company commander about uh, the capabilities of this special unit. And he really wanted to use them for something. And I remember the company guy being like, they're fucking Afghans, you know, but not in like a nice, like, it was just like, never forget they're Afghans. You know, like you can't trust them. And I've seen this not just for Afghan Afghans. I've seen it for Filipinos, you know, insert whoever we're sent to train and educate and be our allies. And then it's always the 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 Americanism hits and you get punched in the chest of like, oh, this is what this is about. Yeah, I've always thought and what I took on as a mantra and I've actually probably never said this publicly and people will get mad. I don't care. Um, I want everybody in that case, the Afghans or Iraqis, wherever I was to believe I loved them, that I was a part of them, but I was always ready to shoot them in the face. If it meant I could get home. Yeah. And, and that is difficult to deal with when you're building relationships. And I literally prided myself on building relationships. Cause at the end of the day, that was my security. Like I said, and was like, Hey, tell me about your kids. I would talk about my kids to an extent, but I was always ready if, need be i would i would not have lost a wink of sleep if i would have had to pull up my gun and shoot them in the face if they had pulled on me or drawn their weapons on me um and that's a delicate i don't even know delicate's not the right word man it's like hey send these kids over there to not kids grown men to go over there and hey um be prepared to make friends and also to shoot the same guy in the face nah man no better friend no worse enemy you know, as yeah. we say about the Marines, but that's what I'm saying is like this stuff, even this podcast, right? Like we could jump on here. We could go very linear. Hey, yeah. Herb, tell us about this. Da, 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 da. But like, that's not how real life is, man. Nope. Stuff isn't as linear and processed as it is. We're just kind of figuring stuff out and we're dealing with it. And sometimes it's not always black and white. Right. But you bring up a good point about that of like, yeah, these are your allies. But, you know, can, are you prepared to do what you have to? You know, is it your Marines life over one of theirs? And more often than not, right, you always put the Marines first or you put your unit first. Yeah, the way I always looked at them, people, this is other Green Braves that look at me like, Herb, you really love working with Indige. And again, I've never said this publicly, but heck, let's roll. Um, I always thought about this, is I could live or and sleep okay at night if they died. What was I going to do if my, my buddy Joe, Jeremy, Chuck, some of the Americans died or – some of the American augmentees, whether they were, you know, SIGINT guys or infantry, what if they died? 
I don't know if I can live with that, right? Or how, I, not if I can live with it, how I would process that. But I know how I'd process it if an Afghan or Iraqi or whoever died, in this case, an Afghan. Um, okay, like I have some feelings and I move on because it's their country. Uh, and that's that's been my way to process things. Yeah, no, I mean, you think about it, I'd have been devastated, right? Thank God I never lost a Marine in combat or something, but I'm just kind of thinking about myself. I think I would have been devastated. Yeah, I, I was I was telling my girlfriend, and you, you spoke about your girlfriend, and I think other people kind of have a there there's a meaning to life, right? And they come into your life, and my girlfriend, she's got me to talk a little more about this kind of things. And uh, there was a time where my buddy Joe and I we had basically been left behind on a mission. It, it was the plan, but not exactly as planned. And we were literally ran for probably about a mile, mile and a half to other Afghans. That was our security was to get to the commandos, right. And their trucks. And the most scared, I told her the most scared I ever was, was I was worried that something's going to happen to Joe. It wasn't me. I was running. I was telling the guys to keep up with me, a few Afghans and a few Americans. And I was like, if you can't keep up, you're going to die right now. Cause this isn't no joke. We're literally running through a, a village. We just cleared and it's circled by Taliban and al-qaeda fighters uh that literally are looking down at us and calling on radios saying we're gonna get in a fight soon the helicopters leave the helicopters left and we were like crap we got to get back to at least the closest thing to safety was some other afghans uh with guns on our side and that was i would never been more scared and i i don't i i i still think to this day once in a while if something had happened to joe my buddy who's now up in the FBI up in the New York city area. But if somebody had something had happened to him, I don't think I could live with myself right now. Cause I felt that responsibility. Now, if something happened to one of that Afghans with me, which it did, you know, people, people were killed and shot that were Afghan commandos. I don't lose any sleep over that at all. Uh, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Yeah. I think it just kind of comes through our process, but people got to understand when you deploy, this is like deploying with a sports team. You know, these are the guys that you've been in the trenches with, you've been training with, you know, and nobody wants to go to a away football game and leave people, you know, and say like, oh, you come back and everybody's like, where's Joe? You know, and you're like, he didn't make it right. Nobody wants that. And so there definitely is this mentality of like getting everybody back safe and being unapologetic about it. You know, one yeah, of the things and, I saw you um, kind of doing remember, our job while we do it. Yeah. One of the things that you talked about that I think about, too, are my interpreters. You know, I do definitely think about them um, sometimes, man. I had I had so many different – I had like a three because I was like a platoon reinforced, you know. Yeah. So I was rolling deep, 75, 80 people, and they would rotate the, the interpreters. But the first time I ever got mortared, right, I was right there next to my interpreter. So, like, that was a trying experience in my life, you know, getting mortared at, you know. And who was right there with me in the trenches was that interpreter, you know. Um when we had the Afghan security courses steal some of our um, SL3 gear, you know, they, 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 they stole some of our equipment um, on watch. Right. And who was the one that got it back for us? Our interpreter. Yeah. And it was the Afghan security forces that stole it. But yeah. our interpreter was like, they took it, sir. I promise. You know, yeah, in, in many cases uh, in, in special forces, usually we hire our own interpreters. Now we didn't hire them, the team before us, because we, we pick up from them and on. So when I got to Afghanistan in 2012, I will tell you the interpreters had more combat experience than I did. Uh, they had been in more firefights than I had. Um, and I didn't automatically trust them, but over time, 
I really grew even more so than the commandos that, you know, I was advising leading. I grew a bond with them interpreters because, Hey, let's, let's be real. I don't speak Pashto. I don't speak Dari. I don't, you know, I picked up some, but not enough to actually lead a fight. Yeah, I, I did over time, but I, I had to rely upon them. And those guys uh, risked their lives for us uh, for what they thought was a better calling. Also a good paycheck. And I, I, I talked with one last night for over an hour, Mike, and you know, it broke my heart because fortunately I believe all the interpreters I work with and we had like 10, we had a ton, man, like for us, cause we were a special forces operational detachment alpha leading a large, a commando Kandak. So a whole battalion of indige. So we had to have a lot of interpreters and I believe all of them made them made it here, which I'm thankful for. But I was talking to one of them last night. He's been here multiple years. He's now a U.S. citizen, uh, doing doing good things. He was my favorite. Sam, I I, I love this guy. I literally told him last night, I love you, man. Um, and people didn't know he's American. I actually passed him off as American to fly on some helicopters. He shouldn't have flown on because I needed his skill set of you. You can speak the languages, but more properly, like I trust you. By that point, and what. I guess where I'm heartbroken now is I look at him and he has family still there. Like he made it out. Uh, but his mom, you know, siblings didn't. And that's probably the case for most of the interpreters who've made it out, who work with us. Uh, their family members didn't. So they, they're left behind to deal with what's happening now with the Taliban or whatever we want to call them today. And, and that's what tears me up is, you know, these people risked their lives for us in many cases, and we're good people. Not, I'm not going to say all, oh, I'm sure there was bad ones somewhere, but they were good people. And they got paid, and they did their job, but they did more than their job in many cases. And uh, not too many people could say, hey, I risked my life for my job today to get 100 bucks a month. And they did that. No, I agree, man. I think about, uh, you know, my interpreters, man. It's like I had to trust them as a lieutenant, right? Because... Yeah. I don't speak Pashto. I don't speak this language. I can read body language. I can read body language by default. So you would like to think that there was something there, you know, that we kind of had. But let me ask you this, you know, as you kind of have some time and space away from everything, and especially like you're very well educated, right? You know, do people forget that like we kind of made the Taliban, you know, like the Taliban is us, you know, it was like back in the seventies when they were fighting the Russians you know, where did they learn all this stuff? Who was the one investing in them? You know, it was like, yeah. we kind of made that devil. Yeah, we did. We funneled the arms through Pakistan. I mean, it's history, right? And if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it. And then you're probably just going to repeat it anyways. Uh, but yeah, we, I mean, in some ways we did. We we helped uh, the Mujahideen in the Mujahideen. 80s against the Russians. And then that's kind of some of the people when we went in were supporting us and some were against us. Uh, but I think in there, that specific country, um, when's the last time they knew peace, right? I, and it's hard to say as a culture, like, but that's what it is. But I think more so is the just different values, different culture. And if we try to impart, you know, the American way of life on it, and that's what I always said. Is this Afghan good enough? Whatever country I went to, is it Afghan good enough? Is it Syrian good enough? Iraqi good enough? Whatever it is, is that they're good enough? Because we can't make them into the mold of Americans because, quite frankly, it won't work. And 
not like we know everything here, right? They've lived there thousands of years. They're, they're people, they're tribes and uh, they've sustained themselves. And I learned from them, but I also learned some stuff that I didn't want to do from them. So it's funny. I was talking to, I keep saying it's funny. I'm working on my podcast to y'all. So if I repeat stuff or sayings, I, I apologize. But I was having a conversation with someone today about organized crime and the separate economy, right? And what would our world look like? I don't want to say, let me rephrase that. I know what it would look like. The crime we see in Chicago, the crime we see in our inner cities, the crime we see all across the country, the violence and all that kind of stuff, right? I think that is a separate economy when you don't have the institutions of the police, we don't have the courts, we don't have all this kind of stuff. And it's just very violent and it plays by its own set of rules. I think that's what we see in these other countries without these systems that we kind of have here. But I also think it's like, it's easy for us to look at that kind of stuff and say, oh my God, it's so terrible what's happening in Afghanistan and da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. Bro, have you checked Chicago? You know what I'm saying? Have you checked all these places? And so part of me, and this is my journey as like an American of like, when I was younger, I used to go on mission trips to uh, uh, Africa, you know, Uganda and Kenya and all these places. Yo, you know, I spend my time and energy now, Newark, New Jersey. You know why? Because we got people in here living, you know, in more in challenging circumstances as well. And so I'm definitely like not in this like American first and it's just very visceral, you know, every at the expense of everyone else. Just more in a sense of like, hey, we have our own internal issues and it doesn't make any sense for us to be outsourcing all these resources and money and everything else. We got to start addressing these issues within our own community. And then the last thing I'll say is, again, with that Taliban, it's easy for us to look at the Taliban and look at these these other whatever you want to call them and not look at ourselves. And I challenge people not to make that mistake. You know, our warlords might just be the gangsters on the corner, you know, pushing dope, you know. And so it's, you know, just don't look at these other countries and not look internal. Yeah, that uh, I think that's good, Mike. It's I think it's very easy. And when I talk to people like you, I can have an open conversation. There's some people I can't because I'm like, how much have you traveled the world? And I don't mean you were safely inside a compound in insert X country on a resort. I mean, you actually got out and talk with people. And I'm not saying I've been to every country in the world. I, I, I've been to multiple, but people are different. Our values are different. We look at it, but if we actually pull back and look at hope, man, we got issues here. And uh, not just like, I won't even go with the gang, you know, violence. We have issues here with violence and, you know, people being killed, but we have political issues of like, who is funding stuff that we end up voting for. And then what happens? I don't care if you vote left, right, red, blue, Democrat, Republican, but there is, have you ever looked into it? You know? And it's like, uh, probably a naive and I, I've said this and I wrote, I think an article about it uh, before last year's presidential election was the first time I'd ever voted. Cause while I was in, I didn't feel like I was knowledgeable enough. I didn't feel like I was in a position to vote and I never did. And people get mad at me and I'm like, well, no, I didn't vote. Cause I didn't know who to vote for. I didn't understand. I didn't dive into it. I just want to go do my job being a soldier. And and then I pull back now, and that's probably the biggest thing after my retirement is like, for the last 20 years, I focused externally. I focused on, the, let's be real, the Middle East and Southwest Asia. 
That was my focus for 20 years. And then I retired and said, shit, man, we got problems here at home. I've been ignoring. Uh, and uh, there's stuff going on here and the, it, there's issues all around the country. There, there's no place safe and, you know, secure from the issues. So it's, it's given me a, that's probably the biggest change in my perspective of seeing the problems here at home. You know, he's funny. I, I said it again. I caught myself. I just said it's funny. <laughs> um, I think our war for the veterans is right here at home. It's right here in our local communities. It's right here in our states. There's a lot of, of, it just looks different. Fighting might not look like running around with a trigger, you know, with an M16 or M4 or whatever. You might have to go pick up some basketballs and some, you know, whatever it else. You might have to go volunteer and hand out food to that soup kitchen or whatever. But I don't make the mistake of thinking that there's still not a fight to be had. And yeah. it's fighting for, you know, I think a lot of veterans still have an opportunity to create the impact. And I think sometimes when we transition out, people tend to lose that and they lose that focus, you know, and they tie their self-worth in the, a uniform and weapons and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But man, we got different weapons. Now we got books. Yeah. You wrote a book. That's a new weapon, you know? And it's like, yo, where is the fight now? The fight is at home. And how can we mobilize our community, the veteran community to impact the country economically, socially, and all these different aspects. And I feel like there's tons of opportunity to do it. There's a there's multiple ways to fight, right? One is obviously the kinetic. You grab a gun and you shoot the enemy and they shoot back at you. But like what you're talking about, that's what I've always said. And I've said it multiple times. Why did I write the book? Why do I do what I do? Because I don't get paid for it. This is just because I believe in it. And I truly believe the more veterans, and not that we're better than anybody who hasn't served, we're different. Um the more veterans who get out and succeed in life in communities and companies around this country, the better off our country will be. And I believe that now more than ever with every day. And I think getting out there and I, I think for multiple reasons, we, a lot in general, we have a lot of character that's built up. We have selfless service of I'm going to serve others. Uh, my end goal is not to make the most amount of dollars. My end goal is to help others. My end goal is to see others succeed. I'm willing to sacrifice for that. I think that comes into play. I think um, when you look at uh, who gets credit, I don't care who gets credit. Let me just help people out. I also believe we've dealt with ambiguous situation where there's not a right answer, but we have to figure out a right answer. I believe we know how to work with people. Let's be real. You and I are different, right? Like you're talking Newark and, and, and being there and work in the inner city. And there's me from upstate New York and now here in the woods of Maryland. Like you couldn't be more different but we know how to span that gap for a common goal, a common mission. And the more veterans that can get out there and do something in their communities, it doesn't take a uniform. It doesn't take a beret or a fancy uniform or some type of chevrons or, you know, um, shiny stuff on a uniform to make a difference. You don't need a uniform to lead. You don't need a uniform to make a difference. You just do it one people or one area at a time. You know, I think, um, one thing that, that you've gone back to Afghanistan too. It's so difficult. Remember what you just talked about, about open dialogue. It's very hard for you to talk like this, whatever. I've tried to create this platform as a safe space. Like it's not about being right or wrong. It's just about having a space to have the discussion. And like, have we talked to the Taliban? You know, have we really talked to them? Have we sat down and had a conversation like this? Like me and you were having. 
And I'm not saying we would agree with the way they think and they approach stuff, whatever. But like, have we ever really talked, you know, in a space where like, there's not the power, you know, like even us talking to the interpreters, right? There's still this sense of like, not going to be true vulnerability, you know, because we're staying there. We got the resources, we're paying them. It's an imbalance, you know, but when you sit there as equals and you come to the table and you have a conversation, that's a whole different conversation. And when I think about our experience in these other countries as warriors, right? Like, have we ever sat across the table from our enemy and had dialogue? And you start to look back at some of these Vietnam veterans and how they were able to have that conversation with the commander, you know, and find that kind of mutual understanding of just kind of how they view the world, whatever. Like, have we had that with the Taliban? And I'll tell you this, I've seen more Taliban on TV, on the news than I ever saw in country or ever heard about anybody having contact with. Yeah, man, that that's what I was going to say is like, what's a Taliban, right? Because we I, I was telling somebody this the other day, like we wore uniforms. We all wore American flag on our shoulder. We all this is us. They didn't do that. Right. So I think we say this Taliban and what is that? Or okay, you name the organization. Um, and I'm sure it was filtered because it was through interpreters and stuff. But I've sat and talked with people who hated me. They wanted me dead and you could tell it. And I'll say some were, they actually believed it. They, my way of life, me just being a gringo, for lack of better words, uh, they wanted me dead. But there's others that, quite frankly, they're doing it for survival. I talked about that, you know, the poppy farmer who had an acre of poppy. He was just doing it for survival. And simple math, 300 bucks for an acre of wheat, 3,000 bucks for an acre of poppy. I'm not a mathematician, but one of them sounds a lot better. And I don't care what happens on the backside because I'm feeding my family here. So it's, I think, understanding that, and I've been able to talk with some, it'd be interesting. I, I do think there's some that there's there's no talking with them. They hate our way of life. They hate if we give women rights. They hate if we give minorities rights. They hate if we give, you insert it. They believe in a certain way of life, and they'll do that. I think others do it to survive, and I think some jump on the bandwagon, kind of like why people join gangs, right? Why do people join gangs? Oh, I feel like I'm in a family. I feel like I'm belonging. I don't necessarily want to go do bad things, but hey, I feel good here with this group. And I, I start to feel it. And that's not all cases, but that's a lot of cases. So it, it's, I think, being able to step back and understand that, like you said, be able to talk to them and see it. Because there is, you said like how before, like you hated Muslims. Man, I ain't going to lie, man. If you, I, I don't know how you don't have a shred of that if you've served in the military over the last 20 years, because that's where we've been. That's where our brothers and sisters have been dying. We've been in firefights with them across, you know, Middle East, Southwest Asia, how you don't feel that. But then you are able to talk to someone and go, Oh, that is, that's them perverting the religion. Okay. And, but I think it's normal to feel those kind of thoughts. Yeah. The problem is when we're in a silo, we don't have each other around to talk about this stuff. Yeah. We don't know. So I knew that when I was sitting in my Rutgers class, Introduction to project management and nonprofit management. Sorry, introduction to nonprofit management. And I've seen all these Muslim students in there and they've got their kajabis on, yeah. you know, um, and I'm just like staring, you know, like, you know, I just kind of look at people like yeah. people watching. Possible like, forever. Oh. I was just so fascinated. I'm like, they're just in here, just in class, like everybody else, whatever. And I had to do my own self-awareness. And it hit me that I had just spent the last eight years because even before I went, right, we were 
probably 10 years, if I'm being honest, because yeah, when I was yeah. going to the Naval Academy, yeah, yeah. I went in 2005. What happened in 2005? Uh, lone survivor. Yep, yep. You know, um, that whole situation happened. Then you had Exhaustion 17 while I was at the Naval Academy. Um, and so then you've had like, basically my enemy was always pictured as Muslim. And when I thought of Muslim, right, I didn't think of black Muslims. You know, I didn't think of all this. It was just Arab descended Muslims, Middle Eastern Muslims. And so for years, this image was reinforced in my mind as the enemy. It was reinforced in training. It was reinforced, you know, at the role playing with the role players. It was reinforced yeah. in war, you know, Everything. then it was reinforced in my mind in the Marines that we lost. And when I'm seeing stuff on the news. So this enemy, I never saw as anything other than an enemy until you're sitting in class with them. And you're just like, I can't stop staring at these people, you know, and I'm like processing this by myself, not with yeah. you, not with anybody else, because I'm just out here in the wild. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like having all these thoughts. Da, 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 da. But luckily, because I live in a very diverse community like Newark, everyone, a lot of people are Muslim in Newark. A lot of black Muslims, people's names are Narik, Tashid, you know, all that kind of stuff. They were the Kufi, they, it's yep. Muslim. So I had to open up my world. And then one of my best friends, you know, his wife is Muslim, you know? And so you just kind of have to let go of the world that you kind of came up in and accept this kind of new reality. And it's not in a bad way. It's just that I had to process it and understand why do I feel these things? And the reality of it is that they were not real. Yeah, we all have to process in our own way. I think for me, I had realized there was good Muslims because I had served with them, right? I had to. Like, hey, they didn't kill me, whatever. But I, there was that conundrum of, there's these good ones, there's these bad ones, and then, like, what is going on? And I think we all deal with it and figure it out in our own way of, like, and I, I believe time gives us the benefit of some self-reflection, some introspection of what are we feeling, what do we think about others? And, I mean, they always say, you know, the old the old wise man, the old wise, you know, lady, go, go talk to them. Well, there's a reason. They've seen a lot in life, and they've learned, they've adapted and I think that's the best we could ask of ourselves is we adapt and we learn as we go. I want to go back one more time to what you said about um, there's some people that like you can never agree with them. They'll never see the light, whatever. One of the things I've been working on is I try to see the human in everything. So I don't I, I always regardless of race, skin color, whatever. I try to look at the human level and also see like where do we where are the commonalities that we have? And one thing about even how me and you talk here, we can't talk like this amongst each other, right? There are yep. people in America you cannot have a open conversation with because of I'm right, you're left, da 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 da. -da. And again, the Taliban, I'm sure it's the same thing, da da. But I would like to think in the middle, there's somebody you can have a dialogue with, right? You're always going to have those extremes that don't want. Yeah. They're yeah. happy with the way they see the world. They don't want anything to challenge it. You know, it's just this way it is. This is how we see it. But also the majority is in the uh, middle. There's there's people in the middle. And so a lot of veterans are probably feeling a lot of bit different stuff right now about Afghanistan. This is our call it our Vietnam, yeah. you know, where we saw the, the where we spent our time. People have lost people. Um, and now we're kind of seeing the fruits of our labor. But I would argue that in combat, like unless you hold it, you don't hold it. 
You know, and that was one of the frustrations with Afghanistan. Fight tooth and nail, go take this compound, lose some people, and move on to another compound. What's the point? You know, you're just kind of driving around, taking space, not maintaining it. But what would you like to say to the veterans that are out there that are listening, that are watching what's going on, you know, as they start to process it in their own way? Yeah, hey, you're entitled to process that however you want. You know, you, you've earned that. Uh, my thoughts are you, you should be proud of your service. You went and did a good thing. It wasn't in vain. Never forget those we lost, but you did a good thing. You give people hope. And let's be real. We talked about some issues back here in America, but as we talk right now, you and I, Mike, Kabul is under siege. It is under siege. There's people that, quite frankly, have different values who will cut people's head off, put them into sex slavery, do all the stuff we've talked about and haven't talked about, storming Kabul right now. That's not happening in New York City. It's not happening in San Francisco. It's not happening in Milwaukee. You insert the city. We've kept them there for 20 years in a fight there that hasn't been on our home home turf. So that that's one. We gave thousands of people a chance and they were able to leave Afghanistan, whether it's come to America, Canada, or another country. We also gave others hope and chance to make a better life for themselves. And then we did what was within our control. We went there, we had an honorable service. We accomplished our mission of what our missions were. We can't control what happens at a national policy level. That's, you know, that's for history to decide. That's for, you know, politicians up there doing it. But I, 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 what I don't, what I fear is, I fear what happened after the Vietnam War, and that's why those people have a special place in my heart. Is because I'll be frank, they were treated like shit when they came back, and that's not what we have today. That is not. We are very well supported as a service member, as a veteran. But I worry if people think that of like, I failed, we, we failed, we didn't win the war. Well, this wasn't the outcome we wanted of, you know, seeing the American flag taken out of the U S embassy today, Kabul fallen to the Taliban. And quite frankly, the whole country has fallen. We can't control that. We did good things. Our service was honorable. The sacrifice that we put in was worth it for many good reasons, don't ever look at it in shame, stand with pride, give it some time so we can look back and reflect on it. Those are great words. Um, and I highly encourage y'all to check out Herb's article in uh, We Are the Mighty. Um, he's an up and comer as a writer and thought leader and uh, just dropping a lot of knowledge and wisdom for the community. You know, one of the things I want to do before we let you out of here, Herb, is uh, go ahead and talk to us about your book, The Transition Mission. Yeah, I was, quite frankly, I knew nothing else. I joined at 17 straight out of high school from a poor family. So I knew how to plan missions and how to do missions. And I wrote a book, uh, The Transition Mission, which was my approach to transitioning from the military service and how to be successful afterwards. And I believe we all define our own success, but this was a way to, hey, check it out the book. This is a, a template, if you will. Here's some tips to help and put them in your. It's not, don't, I always say own your journey. Don't own my journey. Don't own Mike's journey. Own your journey and live your life. Here's some things that can help you. And that that's the book. And it's, you know, it was a bestseller on Amazon, won an award for best how-to book of 2021. 20, uh, and, and it's resonating with people because it's simple. I mean, you see how I talk. I'm not some academic, man. Like, I, I'm just real. And this is how I talk to translate stuff and make it as simple as form possible. 
And that's what the book was about. And I never envisioned being an author, but it happened because I felt the calling from our brothers and sisters to make something happen. What gave you the confidence to write a book so early in your own, you know, transition? I, I probably didn't think about that, Mike. Quite frankly, like sometimes we do stuff because we're young and dumb, right? And just confident to go do something. But really, no. I mean, there was a girl up in New York City who had transitioned out, and I was coming back from the spine surgeon, and um, she had reached out to me, and I was like, "Wow, I need." I was talking with so many veterans and tell them, "Here's what I'm learning. Here's what I've learned in my transition." And I was like, I, I can affect so much more if I just put this to paper. So I actually didn't even think about like, oh, my God, it's so hard. I literally got home. I sat down and two thirds of the book I typed out over one weekend. I, you know, I would get up to go to the bathroom. I did a little bit of sleep and I got some food and most, you know, 65 some pages I typed out over a weekend from Friday evening to Sunday evening. And the rest just kind of figured it out and said, let's get this in the hands of people who need it. One of the things I love about podcasting is it makes you think. And even as we're just talking, I'm thinking through some stuff. And one of the things I was thinking about was like, there definitely seems to be this emphasis on transitioning now. But I think it's like, because of social media, we didn't, maybe we didn't realize how many veterans were struggling with transitioning because we weren't all connected. And so it was like, you know, people are a lot more depressed now because they started to see how other people are living. People are perceived to be living thanks to social media. And I think for veterans, I think maybe social media has shown us how disgruntled people are like the opposite of, you know, the flashy stuff that like, man, a lot of people are struggling. So this stuff is like kind of been amplified. And I just see a lot of people that really worried about that next step. And it was like, we, when we're going through it, we don't really think about it. Right. You're like, oh, I'm get out, yeah. whatever. But you know, not everyone has this smooth kind of transition. And I was talking to somebody today and they're like still trying to find their purpose and meaning in the world. And the way she described it, um, was like, he needs a mission. He's like, I just need a mission in that team and tell him what to do. But the civilian world is like, you got to create your own mission. You know, nobody's like, yo, man, nobody's giving you orders. You better make your own orders and you better make your own direction. And until we as veterans figure out how to do that, whether that's being a, uh, working under somebody else or going and being an entrepreneur, you know, a lot of veterans are looking for that next mission and it may not show up. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to know you're looking for the next mission. That's part of the problem. Nobody tells you that. Oh, everybody wants to hire veterans. Everything's great. And most of the military stuff or not, if not all is geared towards, Hey, get your next job. Not the best job, not like a high paying job, not one that fulfills you. It's get a job. They checked the block, got a job, but there's much more too. And you kind of hit on it. I believe if, if you know your identity, you know who you are, you know, your purpose and you have a mission, life is good. Life People, I'm, I'll just be frank. We have a veteran suicide issue in this country. Too many of our brothers and sisters take their life. They survived overseas or they didn't even deploy overseas, but they made it through training here and then they take their own lives. Um, but if you have your purpose, your identity, and you have a mission and you know your tribe, this is my tribe, this is my family, you know that? Them, the people who are content with that don't take their lives. So I think, but we got to know to go look for it because in the military, they give your identity, said, hey, your ensign, your lieutenant, your private, your sergeant, whatever, your identity is made there. They give you your mission and they give you your purpose with that mission and they give you the tribe that surrounds you. You don't have to look for it. It's given to you. But when you get out, you got to look for it or trip, fall forward into it. Yeah. 
We got to get her back on, y'all, because uh, I reached out to him at just, I'm just in my podcast studio. I've been trying to podcast more consistently. Podcasters podcast, writers write. We are what we repeatedly do. And so I'm in here. I knocked out a podcast, but I want to talk about Afghanistan. Pinged Herb, and he jumped on. And I appreciate you for doing that, man. But I want to get Herb back because Herb's got an amazing story of just, you know, I saw your post about growing up in a trailer, getting that Accenture job, going back with that check. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff I want to learn. I want to learn more about your background and how you see the world and your ascension through our system. And so we're going to get you back on here. But I appreciate you jumping on to talk about, uh, you know, Afghanistan and help me, you know, think through these thoughts because I could have done it solo, but I thought it was cool to do it with another uh, veteran fellow brother. So, uh, Herb, before we let you out of here, how can people follow you? Where can how can we support you? Uh, let us know about the book and following you on social media. Yeah, the transition mission on Amazon. Uh, you also have Herb Thompson hyphen SF to Biz on LinkedIn, and then Herb hyphen Thompson is my website. And then, uh, what do you know? Maybe here soon, I'll have a YouTube channel up and out there for uh, some of these thoughts. Well, again, you're always welcome on our platform. I'm gonna get you back on here to hear more about your story. Uh, as we made this one uh, primarily about Afghanistan. But uh, for my listeners, do us a favor. Go ahead and support, support this podcast by subscribing and joining my newsletter on Substack at the link in the show notes. Uh, I'm, again, I'm writing every single day. I'll release a newsletter at least once a week on Fridays at noon. So make sure you're checking that spam folder. And uh, I would love for you to subscribe to the newsletter on Substack and let me know what topics you'd like me to cover either on the show or to write about in the newsletter. I'm also tweeting at my new, at my tweet, uh, what's my Twitter account? At Native Sun Speaks. Um, so be sure to check that out to see some essays that will eventually turn into show topics uh, for this podcast. And uh, I just appreciate all the support I'm getting. You know, what I do now, I'm going back and forth between, you know, I come on, I got my show notes and I'm ready to do a deep dive on this topic. But also like to challenge myself with what I call, with, with what I call free flowing thought. So this is kind of like what me and you did. Me and Herb literally were processing our thoughts as we were speaking about it, right? We didn't come in with some set agenda and it's like, hey, you go here. Like, I didn't know what Herb was going to say. He didn't know what I was going to say. We just kind of, you know, opened up and talked about it. And so uh, I, I like doing that on this podcast. And so um, I really enjoy that free flowing thoughts. So be on the lookout for it. But uh, I just want y'all to know I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. And until next time, peace, love, have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our trees, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.